Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hello, everybody. I'm Kathy Grace, and it's so nice to be back and uh, being able to interview a person of such expertise as we have today. Dr. Abby Lane is a senior research associate and team lead at the Prenatal to Three Policy Impact Center at the LBJ School at the University of Texas at Austin. She leads the Clearinghouse team, which conducts comprehensive systematic reviews of the evidence to identify state policies and strategies that have demonstrated effectiveness at creating the conditions in which young children and their families can thrive. And what a time for her to be able to spend uh, talking with us, given the amazing amount of funds through the American Rescue Plan 2021 that it will be coming into states. And I'm sure she's got some thoughts about how this money can best be used and how uh, it can truly be a new day and, and change the path of many, many hundreds of thousands of children and their families. Uh, Abby holds an MPP from the George Washington University and a BA in political science from St. Olive College. And she has her doctorate from the University of Texas and did a lot of research on uh, the intersection of non-standard and unpredictable work schedules, childcare and maternal well-being. Uh, she also was employed at the Women's Law Center in Washington, D.C., focusing on family, economic security, employment, and education policy. She is a parent of two, and she lives with her husband in Los Angeles. So, Abby, thank you for being with us today, and uh, please feel free to share anything that's on your heart or on your mind that will bring us a little more understanding of uh, these unprecedented times that we as a country are, are facing both from a, a positive standpoint and also from the trauma that we're still trying to get over from the last year. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about all of this. I think it is such an interesting time, especially in the policy world, given the impact of COVID and a lot of our systems, especially early care and education. Um, it's a little bit scary, but it's also a lot exciting with the funding that we're getting to help support people. So I'm excited to be here to talk about it today. Well, how did you come to this point in your career uh, with all the things that you could have chosen to investigate and to spend so far most of your adult life researching? Uh, what led you to early care and education and to family issues? Yeah, I think that for a long time, I've had an interest in a lot of these different things, although I will say that my actual entrance into specifically early care and education was a little bit accidental. I've spent part of my policy life looking at different things. I actually originally thought I would go into policy around homelessness because I spent some time after college volunteering at a, at a really incredible homeless shelter there and thought after that experience, sort of how do I apply things that I'm good at and that I'm interested in and in ways that can help people? And so I thought, oh, policy, policy is the way. But when I actually got into graduate school, I sort of moved away from those things and into more broader issues that affect children and families um, and spent a lot of time working on a variety of issues when I was at the National Women's Law Center, including more programs that are focused on you know, poverty alleviation or education supports for for girls or for adults in their careers, um, career training and pieces like that. And then when I got back to my second round of graduate school, one of the things that I was really interested in thinking about was sort of how 
as our society has moved, perhaps moving is the wrong way because there's all, there have always been people who work outside of the hours of nine to five, right? This nine to five thing is, is something that has existed for certain people and not others. But as more and more jobs kind of require that, um, how do we support families and those efforts? And a big piece of that is, is obviously, probably to many, childcare. And so I got into more of the early care and education piece from that side, thinking about how we support workers on that aspect. And it sort of eventually led me to my current role, which is much more broadly focused on early care and education and those pieces and not just, um, certainly not just things like non-traditional hour care and stuff like that. So that's sort of where I got a bit to where I am now. Well, I would imagine that uh, most policy experts and folks who have spent a lifetime in early care and education could never have predicted the past two years with regard to the almost crashing of the system, care and education as a result of COVID and uh, impact on the workforce. And also uh, the response to that through not just the American Rescue Plan, but funding prior to that, that was uh, made available for care and education, early care and education, and for families. And now uh, additional dollars coming into families that through President Biden's new tax credits. And so I think that uh, we're probably going to have to reset the table on policy. For so long, we were, in my opinion, taking the scraps, and now we've got the full roast, (laughs) or we've got a, a, a real full plate that we're going to need to try to figure out with the legislation that is now out and states are trying to make sense out of it. Could you just give us a layman's one, two, three about what exactly is in the American Rescue Plan for early care and education so that we can put some small pieces together because it's so big, sometimes people get overwhelmed with what all this means. So could you help us a little bit with the understanding? Yeah, absolutely. It is such a huge piece of legislation. I know that my colleagues and I spent days pouring over it, trying to figure out all the pieces that are in there. Um, I think that the really short summary of what's in this legislation is that it is a lot of money for childcare, um, which is really exciting and really important. And like you mentioned, it does build on other things. It builds on our existing programs. It builds on prior COVID relief funding. Um, But this particular piece of legislation just gave so much more money to states than they have seen before, I think. And um, I should say that they are seeing because they are still in the process of getting the money. But um, it included um, $24 billion for child care stabilization grants, which I think is um, really exciting, really critical, because I I think that we all know that we've seen evidence that the childcare sector has taken a huge hit in the pandemic. They have also been such a critical lifeline for so many families, for my own family, uh, would not have gotten through this without my providers. And I miss them so much when they were closed. <laughs> and they're so critical to what we do, right? And this $24 billion in stabilization funding is really important because it's flexible. It's intended to get out quickly to help people where they need it the most. Um, And so that's really important. The other aspects of it is that we also have funding for existing programs that are already out there. There's another um, $15 billion for our child care subsidy program. And on top of that, there's actually an increase to mandatory matching funds for states. And that will reflect a permanent change, meaning more funding in the future. It's not just the $15 billion over the next couple of years, but more money down the line. A much smaller amount, but still exciting. 
There's also another $1 billion for Head Start and Early Head Start, which seems sort of small compared to some of the other numbers, but is obviously also critical to supporting another vital piece of our system. So the sort of big takeaway from this is just that there is a huge amount of money that is so desperately needed to support this critical sector and it's coming. So that's really exciting. There's a lot that states can do about it. So I'm happy to also get into more of the details of how they can use it, what they might use it for and all of that as well. Well, one of the things that struck me that uh, I feel is different is the emphasis on equity. And what exactly does that mean with early care education programs and the fact that most of the time we don't refer to equity when we're talking about allocations as specifically as this has done. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of ways that the funding folds in equity. And most of the information that I feel like I have on this right now in my in my head is for the stabilization fund specifically, mostly because that's where a lot of the guidance has come out so far. So we know that that the legislation more broadly targets equity, but we have a little bit more specific guidance on the stabilization funding. And I think that there's a few ways that from what I've read, from what I've seen others publish, that states can use this this funding in a way that promotes equity. One of those is sort of a basic thing that sounds sort of, well, silly to say, but is to get out money quickly, simply, and flexibly, um, which I think is really important when we think about the burden that we might place on providers when we ask them to apply for grant funding, for example, right? If we if states ensure that they're getting money out in ways that are simple and flexible, you're really going to have the best chance to reach a big range of providers. And that's something that has been stressed by the federal government so far in this too, is that states should look to support just a broad swath of providers, because that's the way that we can better meet the needs of providers and better meet the needs of families as well. We don't want all the funding to go to centers, for example, because family child care providers are a critical support of our of our system and they need help too. Um, as a part of that, I think that something that I thought was interesting as I was reading through the guidance is that the federal government has also suggested the prioritization of small providers, um, which I think might also support kind of a, a broader group of people. So specifically, if you're thinking about a provider who might be in an area where they're serving fewer kids because there are fewer kids in that geographic region, maybe a rural area or something like that, getting money to that provider quickly is really important. And giving them a chance to get that money first might be one way to do it, for example. There's also things that states can do that I think are important um, to actually focus on supply building um, that can be done in a way that supports equity. One of that is um, using sort of intermediary groups who are trusted resources by the community to help get out the funding and to help support providers. Another way is that the federal government, as is sort of typical in other pieces of child care funding streams, is that there's sort of priority groups that they've identified. So supporting care for families who use non-traditional hour care, um, for providers who provide care for infants and toddlers, um, for providers who help serve um, underserved areas. So where there's just not a lot of providers for children who are out there, Um, which could, I think, again, include both rural areas, perhaps, but also specific parts of urban communities or things like that. So that could actually touch on a lot of different people. And then care that meets the needs of kids with disabilities. I think a big part of this is also outreach. States have a lot of flexibility in how they get the word out about applying for this. That will be really critical in equity in terms of the providers who can access the funds. So I think that states will need to think about that a lot as well. And then there's sort of um, these other things that I I think touch on equity 
one of which is supporting the workforce that states can give money to providers to support the early care and education workforce, which is just so critical, I think, because a lot of us who work in this field or near this field know that our our providers who are working with our kids every single day are so often underpaid for the work that they do that is incredibly valuable. First, in just providing safe places for our children to be, but also in all of the nurturing and educating and everything they do to support the growth of our children. Um, They are just not paid a lot of money for it, but states can use the money to give to providers, I guess. So providers can use the money to recruit teachers, to retain teachers. They can help boost benefits that might support the well-being of this workforce, who are then better off themselves and then better off to support our children as well. And importantly, providers who receive grants cannot cut pay or anything like that. So I think it's really meant to be a bolstering of the workforce. There's also provisions to target relief to families. So encouraging providers to reduce co-pays or tuition to families, which might be especially important if they've had to increase costs over the past year um, to really reduce that burden on families. And they're also encouraging cost estimation, which is a little bit in the weeds, um, but really is about taking into account the true cost of providing high quality care to kids. So providers often are very responsive to what families can afford to pay, but that doesn't necessarily cover everything that it costs for them to actually provide that care. So they're um, encouraged, states are encouraged to really give out money that adequately supports that. And it can be money that is above private pay tuition or prices charged and things like that. And I think that that's also a really critical piece that could be used to support equity. So all of these things sound sort of general, but they may also support providers in a way that supports equity, that supports children and all of those things. So they sound broad, but I think they all get equity as well. I know one of the concerns that I've already heard has to do with sustainability. Uh, as you mentioned, the, there is a time frame under which the, if you want to call it the large or the big pot of money, has to be expended. And I think it's within three years or somewhere in that vicinity. And so how to set up the, the, the system or the capacity to handle what's coming into the states currently and then what happens when that's not there anymore and how to plan for that so that you're not going to create a a cliff effect, if you would. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really big, really big issue for states. I know that one that states are grappling with. I know that some of my colleagues who have done a lot more of this direct connection to states have also heard from different states sort of varied approaches to how they're thinking about it. These funds, I think, can be used in a couple of ways. One part is, right, that funding just has to be used to, to fill gaps that providers have faced over the past year, whether it's shortfalls they've already incurred, ones that they're incurring as they reopen. So there's sort of a, like, stop the bleeding part, um, for lack of a better way to say it. But there's also, because of the amount of money, an opportunity to kind of think forward about how we can build systems that we want. And I think that feeds into the piece of what do we do when this great pot of money goes away, And so I think states will face a challenge in thinking about how they prioritize money to sort of set up systems for the future, but also, of course, recognizing that when the federal funding goes away, who supports those programs? And now there are proposals, of course, at the federal level to have a lot more money in the future for childcare, but if those aren't passed, then there's no additional funding for states. So I think one of the things states can think about is sort of using funding and that supply building capacity. Um, They do have a lot of flexibility 
I think mostly within their 10% allocation for administering or administration of the grant, but they can they can use money for supply building, which I think is a way of kind of looking forward, right? Of how do we support certain providers who may be struggling? Maybe how do we support networks to help family care providers in the future going forward? How do we support our data systems to support people going forward? And I also think that states can start doing some planning for even things about workforce supports, if there's ways they can use the money to kind of start a seed for for some of these programs, they can do that. But of course, they are going to have to think about, is there funding from the state, from another grant source? Can they leverage other federal funding for how to support this in the future? And so I think that is a very, very real potential limitation of this. I know that um, I'm trying to think of the example off the top of my head. And of course, I can't think of it in the moment, but I have heard of some some states that are like, we're using X dollars right now to just get out for essential workers, for care for essential workers. And then we're going to use this pot of money to sort of expand our capacity going forward. And that's sort of how they're trying to look at like, what do we use this money now, but in a way that supports providers such that perhaps they're able to also help sustain themselves going forward. But it is a really real problem that I think we have to think about. And um, states may also have to think about themselves if there's ways for them to put in more funding, I think, to these systems going forward, which of course I recognize is difficult in the current economy where states don't necessarily have extra funding lying around to support these programs. But obviously I'm someone who lives in early care and education research. I think it's really important. So I hope that states also see that value. I am optimistic that in part because of the craziness of the last more than year of our lives, that people have really seen the value of early care and education, not just as a work support, but if nothing else, as a work support for our families, but hopefully more than that too, that this is really a place that's worth our money and worth our time and worth sitting with some of these kind of difficult questions of how we build a system going forward. Well, another question, and this is coming from a a person who lives in a very rural state, most states in our country have some geographic portion that is considered rural, some more than others. So I know within those that are living in rural and frontier states, there is some concern because with also within the intention of the law is that all children will receive access to high quality care and education. And I put an emphasis on all because I read it that way. And so, again, when transportation costs may be a lot more in Wyoming, if you were going to bus children to a center, than it would be, say, in Boston, because they're in a concentrated group. With regard to the formulas and whoever or however it was determined, the, the amount of funds per state, there is a concern as to how some states will be able to fully reach the, the goal of access for all children. So do you have any thoughts on that or has there been any discussion or research on how to overcome when you're looking at poor broadband or non-existent broadband in some areas so you can't depend on the technology for professional development, training of teachers, or for doing what many people have had to do this year has been uh, through actually teaching their own children at home because of school closure and so forth. So I just wonder in the policy discussions, has there been any discussion around the, and I won't use the word inequity, but how how some states are going to have more challenges in meeting some of what is a goal that's been set through this? 
Absolutely. And it is a goal. I think it's one that you see that is stressed sort of right up front of any guidance we see that this is um, an obligation for states to really provide equitable access, like you said, for all children. That is really important. And I think that I will say, I, I don't think I have any great quick solutions to the question. This is a really challenging problem, but you've sort of summarized it well. And, and that especially when states are sort of looking at what they have, right? Because this allocation is based on the formulas used for subsidy programs. So how many young kids are in a state, the percent of children who receive free and reduced price lunch in the state and the per capita income. There's this formula the federal government uses and that's how states get money. So states get a fixed pot like Mississippi who gets there. 519 million, I think, right? but that needs to go to different different places. And so I, I do think that this is where one of those, the encouragement about thinking about the cost of care and cost of things come into account, right? Is that we need to look, if you're thinking about a rural provider who has a specific price set for their care, we need to actually take the time to step back and think about whether that fully covers the things that you're talking about, like higher transportation costs or getting access to broadband and things like that that they need for professional development. If states are setting up systems where, okay, we're going to have this network to support family care providers and we're going to get professional development out this way, they need to actually be answering those questions of how we set the system up in a way that reaches those providers. So not just thinking where the most kids are served. I think we sometimes have this inclination of like, well, the biggest group of kids get served in this area and it's just going to be in urban areas because that's where population density is, Right. But how do we make sure, like you said, that when we think about equitable access for all kids, we have to think about those rural areas. So I think that that's one challenge and there's not really, there's no requirements, right? There's no requirements for um, states once they get the pot. Um, I don't have any suggestions for how we change the, the formula of, of how states get money, but once they get it, there's no specific requirements of like, Mississippi has to take X dollars and give it to rural areas, except of course, Mississippi will and other states because they have large rural areas, right? Um, But I think that that's sort of the avenue for how states can think creatively of it. And so we're going to come up against that issue that funding has to get out quickly, but also we have to think very intentionally. But for me, that like cost estimation piece is really critical because that's where we have to think about whether or not we've actually valued the supports that go in there accurately. And that goes into the workforce, it goes into the costs of facilities. And and that includes things like um, how much it costs to get reliable internet or um, how much does it cost for providers to get to their their facilities or children to get to them and things like that. So I think that's where states should take the guidance um, and focus in there. I don't think that there's necessarily clear evidence from research, for example, on what states can do. As someone who's spent, for example, a lot of time reading the literature on childcare subsidies, Um, which is a really complicated policy. There's a lot of different ways that states have flexibility and running that and a lot of different ways we can support providers and support families. But the research base, at least so far, isn't necessarily clear of you should do exactly this to support this group of kids, for example. But I would, this is my plea to states that as you do it, if possible, find those people who want to answer these questions and ask them to study what you're doing so we can learn more too about what is the best way to actually do these things for different groups of kids and for providers. I want to ask two more questions and then uh, let you ask any questions of us or have any other statements you'd like to make that we haven't covered. In looking at the funds and the systems that you've mentioned and how they could be improved or the capacity extended, is there any guidance or is there any 
papers that could be that have been written or that could be written to talk about the uh, utilization of, let's say, the child and adult care food program for partnering with uh, some of these hard to reach centers or individuals that are in a family care situation where they could be joining up there and also the provision of resources through that avenue that perhaps people would not have automatically thought of if they're still just looking at within the child care traditional, traditionally the child care system or the extension service, which in rural areas is a big piece of communication. Other ideas such as those that are out of the box thinking perhaps for a child care state director that is covered up with all the regulations around just the child care programs themselves, waivers around some of the things that have been required of them in the past that perhaps could be relaxed a little bit so that there could be, as you said, the the speed at which this information gets out and the amount of uh, paperwork required. We tried to help it with our center with the PPP for providers in Mississippi, and it was very cumbersome, and most of them had to give up, to be honest. And I'm sure that happened across the country as well. So uh, I I would just like to hear your take on out-of-the-box thinking and if people who are in policy-making positions or researchers who can provide more information to the policy people to look at a track of, let's go out of the box here with these folks and look at other programs that are in place and see how we can spread the word and also increase their capacities if that hasn't been an option in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So I have I have definitely seen resources on the food assistance program that sometimes mm-hmm. people don't remember exists, but is a really good resource for providers to use. I have seen those out there. Of course, off the top of my head, I can't think of where I've seen them. But I have also seen a lot of resources that support um, sort of some of these networks around, especially family care providers, shared services and things like that. These resources exist. And I think it's actually something that states could look to bolster as they sort of roll out these funds too, right? Because some of those systems, those shared services systems or TA supports and things like that can really help providers with some of these kind of administrative burden that you've mentioned here. I I did notice in some of the things I was reading about the specific guidance for the rollout of the subgrants to providers that there is a a big emphasis, at least, on the requiring sort of as simple as possible applications so that the process isn't burdensome on providers. Our providers already faced (laughs) faced so much regulation and so much documentation they have to produce, which is there for a reason, but it's, it's a lot, right? And so... Part of the thing that states need to think about in getting information out, and I think they've been encouraged to do this by the federal government, is how do we get the information we need from providers without requiring more than necessary information? I know that specifically that has come into some of the guidance around budgets and costs and things like that, that that we don't need to require, for example, like a whole budget list from a provider, but um, states should think about how they can request information they need without putting that burden on providers because there are other programs, as you mentioned, with some of the loans that people could get or grants um, that was just a lot of paperwork and made it too difficult. So I think especially with the stabilization funds, it may be different, for example, for the extra funding through the subsidy program, which definitely has requirements and reporting and things like that. But for the stabilization grants, especially, states are really encouraged to think about how to make that process easy for providers, which I think 
is so critical to that equity piece in terms of thinking about providers' bandwidth to, to actually do it. You know, they are, they're already doing so much when they're at work. And I think, too, if you think about, for example, a family provider who's providing care from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., um, and then they go back to their lives, they can't take time out of their day when they're the provider to those children to go fill out this application. So we really have to think about those burdens as we do it. I don't have any other great ideas, except for that this is really critical that states remember as they roll this out. Well, I thank you for giving us this time this morning. Is there anything else that you would like to tell us that I haven't asked you about? Or is there any last words you'd like to give us in the way of encouragement? Please feel free. The floor is yours. Yeah, I think that there's there's kind of two things. Um, one is specifically on all of this is that I'm trying to stay optimistic about this, this funding, and I hope that it really provides the support that it needs to states, to providers, and that all that filters down to our caregivers in the workforce, to our children, to our families, and all of that. I'm, I'm grateful that this funding is here, and I hope that it's quick enough to make a big difference. And I hope that states really think about some of these equity components that we've thought of, that we've talked about today, as they sort of roll it out. I'm also make a plea as, for as a researcher that as states do it, whatever the academic community or other nonprofit groups or whoever else can help sort of keep an eye on what's happening so we can learn about what's really working, I think is really important and something that I hope happens as a part of this. Like I'm just eager for that information because I feel like, especially in the world of early care and education, every, this probably happens to everyone in research in this field generally, but every question I answer, there's like five more questions, right? There's so much we have to learn and especially about how we support kids, how we support infants and toddlers, how we do it more equitably. And I'm just hopeful that we can continue that learning. The other pitch I'll make is that I didn't really yet overview sort of my current organization and what we're doing, um, but wanted to quickly make a make a plug for us, especially because we're looking to work with states, we're looking to learn from states, we're looking to provide information that's helpful to them, and I want to make sure um, people know that because we're excited to learn more from people. So what my role in our organization is, is to really learn from academic literature, what we know about what's effective, right? So our organization has the sort of annual roadmap we've produced with these policies and strategies that we think are effective for building this system of care that supports kids really in those early periods. It's really based on the science of the developing child. Um, but something that's really critical as a part of our work around this roadmap, around the evidence reviews that my team does too, is our policy research exchange, which is really our effort to connect to states so I have a lot of colleagues who are really out there looking to learn from states, both what are they innovating on? What are they doing right now that they think is making a difference for infants and toddlers at their state, especially because every state is so different. Um, there's so much to learn about what states are really doing, and they're really a big source of innovation. We also want to talk to states because we want to know about how we can be a better resource, too. When we're thinking about what we've learned from the evidence base on what's effective, what's the information that states really need to know? Um, and we want to make sure we're sort of always have this two-way street of learning going on with states. So I wanted to also make a plug for that, too, that if there's any state leaders who are out there who are interested in learning more about what we're doing, and if we can learn more from you, we also want to hear from you as well. So that's my quick plug for our Canada um, 3 Policy Impact Center as well. Maybe in a year, Abby, we'll have you come back and you can tell us what you've learned and we can uh, reflect on what we've all gone through in terms of actually implementing policies and programs as a result of all of this new funding that's come our way. 
So again, thank you so much, Abby, for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Today's Lit Bit will speak to those of you who have children who, like my little guy, love worms and bugs and all kinds of creepy crawlies. It's by Jody Samino, and the title is A Worm in My Pocket. This is from FamilyFriendPoems.com. A Worm in My Pocket. One rainy day on my way home from school, I found a big worm and thought it was cool. I picked up the worm with my bare hand, held it up high, thinking how grand. The worm was so cute and wiggled a lot, I put him in my pocket to show Mom what I'd caught. What will she say when I show her my find? Will she let me keep it? I hope she won't mind. Mom was in the kitchen when I showed her what I'd found. She screamed, no way, put it back in the ground. Now I'm so angry, she always says no. If she won't let me keep it, then I will just go. So me and my worm packed a sandwich or two, ran out the door, and down the street we both flew. We walked to the park and sat on a bench. I pulled out my worm and noticed a stench. He looked kind of floppy but wiggled a bit. I thought, oh my gosh, my worm is not fit. I laid him in the dirt and let him go free. I guess that my pocket was not the best place to be. That's a worm in my pocket from familyfriendpoems.com. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 